Welcome to the April 22 edition of Right on Prime. I'm Heidi James, and here with me in the co-host hot seat is Vanessa Cardi. Good to see you, Cardi B. Great to be back, Heidi. Spring is in the air. Well, at least in North America it is. Everything is fresh and new. So how about we discuss a new case or issue that you've brought to us from your clinical practice? I want to talk about a visit I had recently with a middle-aged patient of mine. And this is a patient I've known for over a decade and someone I've seen multiple times per year due to their complex medical situation. So somebody I know very well. So what made this clinical visit particularly memorable? Well, I learned something about this patient during this visit that I thought really is pretty fundamental to their care, and I was left wondering if I should have known about this earlier. All right, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. So this was a virtual appointment, and we talked about, of course, all the active stuff that was going on, and then at the end of the appointment, the patient said they needed a refill, and I asked which medication, and the patient said they weren't really sure. So I asked the patient if they could read me the name of the medication. All right. Don't leave us hanging. What was the name of the medication? They started to read the letters off to me. They didn't say the whole drug name, which isn't really a surprise because drug names, you know, they're not easy to pronounce for the most part. So the letters were J-O-N-E-S-P-H-A-R-M-A-C-Y. Okay, what does that spell, Vanessa? That spells Jones's Pharmacy. Right. So this was not a drug name. The patient had read out the letters of the pharmacy name. And that's when it dawned on me, my patient can't read. They can identify letters and string them together, but those letters did not form words in their mind. And all of a sudden, something clicked and it made sense. All of the missed appointments over the years the difficulty they'd had following through on care plans. It all made sense. This patient, like so many people, can't read. And literacy, or their lack thereof, was impacting their health care, as I'm sure it did all aspects of their life. And knowing them quite well, I could see how literacy had impacted so many facets of their life. Oh, that's so hard to imagine and to hear. It's a, it's a really tough situation to be in. Yeah, yeah. And literacy is such a key skill, but it's one that people don't often talk about. Like for people who lack literacy skills, this can be accompanied by shame and embarrassment. So I was kind of left internally trying to figure out, is this something I bring up with my patient? Because I don't want to make them feel ashamed of who they are, but it's impacting their care. So what should I do? And what did you do? Well, I looked at the literature, Vanessa, because I really wanted to know, should we screen for literacy? Is this something I should be doing with my patients? And I also wanted to know, how should I change the information I'm sharing with my patients to account for different literacy levels? And was this actually covered in the literature? Well, there's not much in the last few years, but it looks like the signature piece on this was in the Journal of General Internal Medicine in 2008. And this study acknowledged that while there are tools that can screen for literacy, They suggested that these should strictly be used in research because of that potential harm of shame and alienation they felt outweighed the potential benefits. And this really matched what my gut was telling me and has always told me. Asking about literacy has to be handled with kid gloves. So did this change how you manage this particular patient or other patients who might have issues with literacy? Well, with this particular patient, I let my office receptionist know because she's the person who books the tests and communicates with the patient's pharmacy and communicates with the patient more commonly. 
And it just kind of let her know that this is the type of patient who benefits from being contacted on the phone. Sending letters, sending emails is not going to be this patient's preferred way of being communicated with. And what about for the rest of your practice? Did the research have any information on how to account for varying literacy levels without singling people out and bringing attention to the receptionists or to the rest of the team? Yeah, so rather than screening, the literature does recommend using universal health literacy precautions to make sure our patients understand the information we're providing them. So I'm going to give you some concrete examples of what those universal health literacy precautions are. And this is a quote from the 2015 AFP article on the topic. This includes avoiding medical jargon, breaking down information or instructions into small concrete steps, limiting the focus of a visit to three key points or tasks, and assessing for comprehension. Additionally, printed information should be written at a grade 5 to 6 level, and visual aids, graphs, or pictures can enhance patient understanding. Those are a couple of examples of what we can do. Do you think those interventions would have helped your patient in this case? You know, it might have helped my patient, but we know that we have a very high illiteracy rate here, so we're already quite intentional about clear, easy-to-follow communication. And at the end of appointments, we really do summarize and give a very straightforward take-home message to make sure the patient knows the plan. And our patient handouts that we use are already quite non-complex. But one thing I think we can be better with is uh, getting our staff to ask patients what their preferred means of communication is. That might give the patients an opportunity to say, hey, call me with the appointment rather than just assuming that it's okay to email or send a letter in the mail to a patient. So I have a question for you. Would you bring this up with your patient and address it more directly? You know, I'm undecided at this point, but I think I might because this patient and I have a solid rapport and have been through a fair bit of stuff in the last decade. And I feel this is very relevant to their care and their overall well-being. So what I think I'll do at the next visit is put some feelers out and just see if they grab at the opportunity to discuss it. So what did you learn from this case overall? Well, I was reminded and learned once again that so much of what we do is impacted by social determinants of health. The patient who never shows up for investigations that we've ordered, well, can they even read the letter that you've sent with the appointment time? The patient who runs out of meds early, can they read the instructions that says to only take once a day? Maybe they've been taking two a day because that's what somebody told them. And, you know, while we're primarily at the bedside in family medicine, this is a strong reminder that we need to really advocate for effective education systems and community programs that can enhance literacy. Because our efforts and our patients are hampered when we can't communicate effectively with each other. Very well said, Heidi, and such an interesting case. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I think it's a really good thing for all of us to reflect on. But now, moving on to the rest of the show. The education doesn't stop here in the introduction. Our show this month is jam-packed with other great topics and talks as well. That's right, Vanessa. In Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee, Hobie and I chat about the ups and downs of being on call, everybody's favorite thing. And on The Generalist, you and Casey continue our focus talks with the I. That's our focus for this month. Then Chris Drum talked with you about common running injuries. Turns out there are many ways to injure oneself while running, but now with this information, we are all armed with the tools we need to help our patients. And then on Rural Med, I was joined by Adrian Salim, who went over a case of procedural sedation that got a wee bit hairy. Scary stuff, but really great learning points. Then, of course, rounding it out are Steve and Ken and their top 10. 
otherwise known as primary care medical abstracts, where they take 10 great family medicine-relevant papers and then review and dissect them for the edification of all. But that's enough of us. Time to jump into the show. We'll catch you on the other side with a summary. Here we go. April 2022, right on Prime. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Hey, Hobie. Hey. How are you, Heidi? I'm good. I'm good. And you? I'm doing great. Excellent. Well, listen, I'm glad you're here to join me again to talk. And the topic we have for this month actually came to me in the middle of the night. And I believe I emailed you about it in the middle of the night, too. Yes, I saw. So what is the backstory about what is so important at 3 a.m. that you're contacting? I was on call. Mm. And not just any call. It was my long weekend hospital call. So that was like 96 hours long. Whoa. That's a lot of pressure. So I was busy ranting to myself about how much I dislike long stretches of call and realized, well, if I'm not enjoying this and having a rough time, I bet others are as well. And I thought that you and I should talk about it. And if you're listening to this and you're one of those people who is not phased in the least by call, just please stop listening. And before you go, know that I deeply, deeply envy you. Yeah, I would say you're a mutant. If you, if you're, <laughs> you're barely human. If you like taking call. Oh boy, somebody needs me. Yes. I think it's worthwhile to, you know, kind of formalize our conversation about it. So I decided to look into the literature around call. And you know what, Hobie? I was surprised that there's not actually a heck of a lot published on this topic. Mm. And I couldn't really find much of anything. There's a lot of info on shift work, especially night work, to which we really owe a debt of thanks to emergency medicine colleagues as they've really brought that to the fore. There's also a lot of information on work duty hours and call-in trainees. But there's not that much current info about attendings. And there's also not much looking at people who do home call. So that is surprising to me because I would have guessed that our colleagues would have published more on this topic because it's something kind of universal to our experience as a physician. It's something that we all do in some form, one time or another. Yeah. Well, I guess everyone's either pre-call, on-call or post-call. So (laughs) (laughs) we're all, we all want to do it, but we're all a little too tired from being on call to actually get around to publish something around it. (laughs) Well, I did actually find some data, but it was from like the late 1980s mid to late 1990s on general practitioners in parts of England. So we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. But a lot of what I read looked at other groups who do call. And guess what, Hobie? 25% of workers take call at at least some point in their career. A full quarter of people. Like that that's wow. a lot of people. Yeah. These are non-medical people you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Non-medical, non-medical. Yeah, so yeah. Wow. Think about like youth workers, uh, ship pilots, uh, volunteer firefighters, all these people do a lot of call. Yeah. Which for me made me feel a little bit less alone in my misery. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> One out of four people is also complaining at the same time you're complaining. Right, but probably not complaining as vociferously. <laughs> That's right. Each work has its own particular stressors and peculiarities about call. And thinking about what we do as family doctors, our on-call duties can vary widely. But I think it is really important to remember that it's not just us. Mm. That's a good point. I had a friend, he works at a computer chip company, and he's on call for their chip manufacturer. So they're producing chips 24-7. And so he's on call. So when the the machines break down or there's a problem in the process, he gets woken up in the middle of the night and he has to go in and fix it. So I guess it's true. Most industries 
are now working 24-7 in some capacity. And so probably a lot of people are on call for their job. There's actually limited data on how this impacts our work as physicians or work in general. I mean, intuitively, we all know that call makes us tired, but it's not Mm -hmm. like there's a bevy of studies saying that it makes us awful workers, awful doctors the next day. But how it affects us overall is a different story. Yeah. So given that, what would you say it is about the call itself that makes it so troublesome for many of us? The big thing here is the unpredictable nature of call. And I'm talking about the scheduling of call itself. Like some people may have a very predictable call schedule, like being on every Monday night. But for many people, I include myself here, our call schedule is erratic. Like it could be Monday one week, then Tuesday, Thursday the next week. And it can be very difficult to plan your life and the life of those who interact with you, like your family's lives, uh, around an irregularly occurring event. Yeah, I think that's a really key point. I hadn't really thought about that that much until you brought it up, but I think that's part of the cost of being on call, is that you have to plan your life around the call, which means you often have to be like within a certain distance of the hospital. And I would say for us here, like our traffic is wildly unpredictable and can be very congested at times. And so we often say, well, you have to be within a certain, uh, not distance of miles, because five miles could take an hour and a half to get through, depending on where you are. So we often say you have to be within a certain time frame. And so during traffic times, you just have to not, not go anywhere because you just know <laughs> you could get stuck somewhere and they could call you and you could check your phone. And you'd be like, oh my gosh, there's so much traffic. It's going to take me forever to get back into the hospital. Yeah. And so I think that's really tricky because you just, you're planning your life around the call schedule. So what about the call itself though? Let's talk about that. What makes that so hard on us? Mm. It would appear that, again, we do not do well with unpredictability. Mm. I mean, you you think back on, you know, you've done call long enough to have a good reservoir of it. Like some nights are just like really quiet and nice. Other nights are nerve wrackingly quiet where (laughs) even though you've been a doctor for a while, you're still up checking your phone being like, that's right. You're like, is the dial tone on the phone still working? Why is no one calling me? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I even call switchboard. I'm like, am I on call tonight? I just wanted to make sure. So yes. The test page to yourself to see, is my pager still working? Like, why right. is it not going oh off? My God. That's right. But then, of course, there's the nights that are just like, wow, like, I would really like to get some sleep. Mm-hmm. So adding to the not being able to predict the schedule, the variety of things we get called to deal with can be anxiety-provoking as well. Like, I'll give you an example. Yep. When I'm on call, it's home call, but I can be called about community patients. I can be called about inpatients. I can be called for admissions. I get called about all the crashing patients who are under our group's care, and I can even theoretically be called to the OR to help with a stat operation. Wow. So you never really know what's on the other end of the phone when you get a page. And don't get me wrong, like, great medicine happens after hours. Like, it's really exhilarating stuff sometimes, but being at your best in the middle of the night on an irregular basis can be quite tricky. Yeah, well, I think that is what we both love and makes family medicine so challenging, right? It's like, we love the variety and being able to deal with anything that comes through the door. But that also means after hours <laughs> and being on call, there's really nothing you can turf away and say, well, you know, that's not really my field. or I don't do that or I don't understand that. That is the best part of being a family physician is you are available to help and often deal with anything that comes through the door. I'm all for that. I mean, if it can happen between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Like, bring it on. Bring it on. Right, right. <laughs> 
Yeah. Maybe if I could do double the amount of work between seven and seven to, to not have to do the <laughs> nighttime, that would be okay. Well, you bring that uh, being a part of the daytime, I think is such an important key for us because I think for most of us, when you're on call, the next day is a normal work day, right? It's not yeah. like there are built-in breaks for post-call days. And it's actually one of the things that I talk to our residents a lot about because you know, as challenging as their schedules are, and it is challenging, they're working 80 hours and they're on hard rotations and they're learning at the same time they're trying to deliver care, which is very stressful. But I also stress that, you know, there are protections in place, right? There are post-call days that they have off, but attending life is not like that, right? <laughs> and many of us who are supervising residents, we are up all night answering calls or working with them and supervising them. And then a few hours later, we're back to our normal clinic job or our normal hospital work. And there really is no break, which I think is part of the challenge of sort of that call schedule once you graduate residency. I would endorse actually that the way we're doing it, Hobie, probably isn't the best way to do it. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Right. <laughs> if we look at those we're training and say, oh gosh, we don't want you to do this. Why in the yeah. world are we doing it? <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it's like one of those things where when you control something for one group, like that work ultimately has to go somewhere else, right? <laughs> Someone else has to do the work that they can't do because they are off the clock now. Right. And I think we would all agree that's very important for our learners. But what it's done is it's just shifted the work to the fellows and the attending. And depending where you are, that could be you. And so you're left picking up the pieces of things that haven't quite been done because time's up for the resident. Right. How detrimental is it for us as attendings when there is really no one else besides us, right? When the buck stops with you and there's really no one you can pass that work on to, I think that really puts us in a precarious position. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And we all know that when we're tired, probably our judgment might not be the best and we wouldn't oh. necessarily know, hey, maybe I shouldn't be working today. And yeah. the stakes are pretty high. Like if I have a rough weekend or a rough night on call and feel like I can't work, well, tangibly, yeah. that means canceling a whole day in the office yes, or right. finding one of my colleagues who's as tired as me here working very yeah. hard to cover inpatients. So that's right. It's really, really tricky. I sometimes wonder if this culture of planning to work the next day just needs to change. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about work here and what happens at work, but what is the impact on our home life? Yeah, and most of the articles I found focused on this and mentioned that it's a huge concern for people with partners and families. They didn't look at people who are unpartnered, although intuitively we can extrapolate this information to, to them as well because everybody's routine gets messed up when they do call. Mm -hmm. And the first thing to consider is the disrupted sleep you get when you're on call. And it's probably not just us whose sleep is getting disrupted. It's interesting. They did a study that showed that even if you don't get called when you're on call, you still sleep worse. Yeah. Your body's just heightened. You're, you're ready to go. Yes. It's the phantom pager syndrome. Where, you're, <laughs> where you feel like your pager went off. You're like, oh, that's a buzz of my pager. And you check and you're like, no, it didn't go off. Yeah, the, everything that goes bump in the night is actually a beep in the night when you're on call. Yes, that's right. I know I do, and I know a lot of my colleagues, we sleep in a separate room when we're on call to mm. try to minimize that disruption to our partners. But, yeah. you know, sometimes you just can't be quiet in the middle of the night if you answer lots of phone calls or if I have to go in to see somebody. It's hard to be quiet enough that everybody gets to still sleep. So everyone that you live with, their sleep is potentially affected by you being on call. Yeah. And if other families are like mine, we are not at our best when we've had disrupted <laughs> sleep. <laughs> you know, 
the dreaded little voice in the night that says, Daddy, your phone woke me up. I'm thinking, <sighs> oh, this is terrible because not only do I have to answer that phone call, I'm going to have to try to get my little one back to sleep. And I also know she will be very tired the next morning, right? And that's just going to lead to a whole slew of other problems. So oh, yeah. I agree with you. Everyone is on call, right? If you're part of a family, everybody is on call that night. It's not just you as the physician. Yeah. And these papers documented things like, I'm doing a direct quote here, increased negative emotional interactions and more conflict in families. And most of us are really less likely to be able to respond with empathy when we're tired and our communication skills just aren't at their best. So even if, like even hypothetically, if we slept well through the night, we're still more likely to bring that ill disposition to our interactions with our families. Not to mention the redistribution of household duties or things like getting behind that happens when you're on call, right? Yeah. My wife is very familiar with my sheepish look post-call <laughs> when, I, when I realized I didn't do something she had asked me to do. I did not carry my fair share of the household duties because I was just too tired or too busy or I totally forgot because as you mentioned, like I'm spaced out from being post-call and, and trying to sort of get my bearings back. Whether you have a partner or not, like tasks just build up when you're on call. My friends and I joke that uh, it takes 10 days to get caught up on the laundry that you miss from calls. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> my concern is about the mental health. How can you bounce back between those calls? And certainly we would say there's no long lasting impact, right, from being on call, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If only, if only. And this is where that study of British GPs comes back. And fascinating here, but I think it's stuff we already know. They found that being on call even one night per week was predictive of anxiety. And that rates of depression and anxiety rose with the amount of call that was done. And it's important to note there was no gender difference in this finding. And you know what? My anecdotal evidence would really back this up. I am unhappier if I do a lot of call. And I see it in my colleagues, too. I mean, except for those rare birds who love call and thrive on it. But uh, call does not do wonders for our mental health. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, it's something that we talk to all of our new incoming interns about, is that your well-being is directly tied to the quality and amount of sleep that you are getting. If a resident approaches me and they say they're unhappy and they're struggling in residency, one of the first questions I ask them is, how are you sleeping? Yeah, yeah, sleep really is the linchpin. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. They've looked at sleep. And if you are sleeping a lot, you feel like your attendings are teaching you more, even though it's the exact same amount because you're <laughs> learning more because your brain is rested. Right. And I think that is the challenge for us is we all know how to operate when our brains are rested. When our brains are not rested, you know, as you mentioned, like there are so many things that degrade from a physical standpoint and an emotional standpoint and a spiritual standpoint. It's all it's all hard to put everything else together when your brain is is overworked and taxed. I remember my mom saying growing up, she'd be like, is the world really falling apart right now or do you just need to take a nap? I'm like, hmm. <laughs> that is wise advice. <laughs> that's a good advice. Mother knows best. So what can we do about it? Outside from taking more naps, which I would be all in favor of, call is a reality for many of us. And short of changing to a call-free job, what can we do about it? Yeah, part of it, I, I think it's a balance, Hobie. I think it's a balance between, you know, that saying acceptance is the beginning of peace, like knowing yeah. that, okay, call is part of my life, part of what I do, and I do it to the best of my ability. But by the same token, working actively towards making call as manageable as possible. And there's a few things I would recommend here. 
One is to talk to your call group. Can you work towards a more predictable call schedule? Like, is there some mm -hmm. way that you can have, like, you know, guaranteed, oh, you won't be on call these nights of the week? If you have longer bouts of call, like I do with my long weekends, can you split these with a colleague? My colleague and I started recently doing this, and whew, thank goodness. And as far as sleep disruption goes, can you maybe take calls somewhere from other than your house? Can you get a nice little soundproof area and go out a side exit, just somewhere to get everybody less disrupted sleep? Can you look at extra supports for home while you're on call? Can you get somebody else to do your laundry, send your laundry out? Can somebody else walk your pet for you? Can you ensure that there's backup childcare to help your partner? I would also suggest lowering your expectations of yourself and of everyone else while you're on call and after call, because when you're cranky, nobody lives up to your expectations. And lastly, I would say that it's okay to book time off after call, depending on how you're doing. Like know yourself and, and treat yourself well, just like we would try to treat our trainees and our patients. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. I, I love the idea of self-compassion. I often would say I'm the hardest on myself. And one of the best pieces of advice I got was, how would you counsel your best friend if they were in a similar situation? And often I would be very compassionate and kind and say, you're doing okay and you're post-call and you're just real stressed and kind of give yourself a break. And yet I don't tell myself those things. I'm not that way to, with myself. And so I think that's excellent advice to kind of lower your expectations and know yourself and just say, this is what I can do today on a post-call day and that is okay, right? And if that means just taking a nap and trying to recenter, I think we have to be gracious enough to ourselves to give us that kind of relief. Yeah. And it's a little bit easier than retraining for a different career. <laughs> yes. yes. Or, or trying to find a job where you say, well, I'll do everything, but no call. No call. Everyone else can take the call, but I, I'm done taking call. Oh, dear. <laughs> we, we have to wait till we're uh, senior physicians and chairs of departments and you know, heads, of, heads of hospitals to be able to kind of qualify for those kind of things. Ah, oh, man. Well, at least until that time, Hobie, my wish for you and for everyone out there is that we'll have nice, stress-free calls. I can't yes. say quiet. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> you're afraid you're going to jinx yourself? Are you one of those people? I am. I am. Oh, no. Here's the quiet, stress-free calls for all of our listeners. <laughs> everyone out there is going to be sending hate mail. How dare you say the Q word? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You killed my next call. I was up all night. <laughs> I hate you. I got a 50-year-old man in cardiac arrest, and our building just lost power. All right, give me jumper cables, rubber gloves, 3,000 grams of Soul Medrol. Stack. What are you, MacGyver? No, I'm the generalist. generalist. So we are back with another in our series on ultrasound in primary care. Now, as usual, we need to remind people that our discussions here are not a substitute for proper ultrasound training. These little how-to guides are supposed to be either reminders for those who've already been trained or perhaps tempting incentives for those who are considering training and just need convincing on how useful this could be for their practice. So on that note, let's rejoin Casey Parker and talk about ultrasounds of the eye. So, Vanessa, the other day, I had a patient who presented with about a two-day history of altered vision, just in her right eye. She described this sort of weird spiderweb floating in her visual field, which just would not go away no matter how often she swatted at it. Oh, yikes. And that sounds kind of like a retinal problem. Maybe a retinal detachment or a vitreous detachment, but of course you are also Australian, and there are lots of spiders there. So maybe it was actually just terrifyingly large man-eating spiders? 
Yeah, it's possible, but I wasn't seeing any spiders, so my guess was there's something to do with her retina. Now, this is a pretty common presentation in primary care, and we need to be able to sort out who needs to see the ophthalmologist right now and who can be followed up later on in the clinic. And traditionally, we would reach for the ophthalmoscope, of course, and look for all those things we learned to see in medical school. But to be honest, I'm not really that confident with my ophthalmoscope skills to say what is a serious retinal detachment versus what is a less serious vitreal detachment. Yeah, I agree with you, Vanessa. It can be really tricky to work this out in a busy primary care office. You need to dilate the pupils, do the fundoscopy. And it's a really big call when you're talking about the urgency of a loss of vision, especially when you're working a long way away from the nearest eye doctors. So who needs to get transferred and get seen today? It's a tough one. So I'm hoping, Casey, that you have the answer to this and that maybe ultrasound can help us make this decision? Absolutely. I can say with a lot of confidence that in the last few years, it's really changed the way I practice when it comes to looking at fundi. We still need to do the basics well. You need to get an accurate history, you know, check the visual acuity, check the visual fields, and have a look in the eye. But ultrasound can make these diagnoses really, really clear. All right, so how does one go about scanning an eyeball? This sounds like sort of a tricky thing to do, because where do you put the probe? Is there even a setting for eyeballs? Is there a special eyeball probe? (laughs) There are a few ways to do this, and I'll I'll tell you my favorite way to do it. What you want to use is the high-frequency linear probe, and most machines won't actually have an ocular setting. Some of the newer ones do, but you can just choose the small parts setting, which is on most models. The next thing you want to do is lay the patient flat or on a gentle incline so they can rest their head on a pillow so that their head's not moving around while you're trying to scan them. And then what you want to do is brace your scanning hand up against their cheek so that your hand's not moving relative to their head. And the last thing that I always do is I give the patient a whole bunch of tissues to hold in their hand so that once I'm finished, they can wipe all that jelly away from their eyeball. That's not fun having jelly in your eyeball. No, even though it's kind of made of jelly, but it's not made of ultrasound jelly. Now, do you put the gel onto the actual eyeball? Because that sounds fairly unpleasant. No, you don't put the gel on the actual eyeball. You ask the patient to gently close their eyes, and then you pile the gel up on the closed lid. And you really want to get lots of gel in there. One, so that you can fill up all those little recesses around the nasolacrimal area, so you don't have any air in your field, which is really going to interfere with your imaging. And it also means that then when you're resting your hand on their face, You don't actually even have to touch the lid or the eyeball. You're not putting any pressure on it whatsoever because that can feel a bit unpleasant. Now, is the probe in the horizontal or vertical orientation for this? So you can, and you probably should look at eyeballs in both planes. But to be honest, the horizontal plane is just easier when you're learning how to do this. And it's usually the more informative of the two. So I normally start in the horizontal plane when I'm doing this. Okay, that makes sense. And what are we looking for when we do start to see an image? What does a normal eyeball look like on ultrasound? Yeah, so eyeballs basically is a big round dark ball. And at the front, you've got the lens and the iris. At the back, you've got the the bright capsule of the sclera. And you can see all these things. And if you line it up perfectly with the midline in the middle, you can see the iris, the lens behind that. And at the back, you can see the optic disc. You can even see the optic nerve where it inserts into the back of the globe at the optic disc. And that's really the target that you're looking for when you're doing these scans. All right, well, I imagine that you're going to need to have a steady hand to see all these little parts. Do you have any tips for that? The really important part of this is bracing your hand against the patient's face or their cheek. You know, you've only got a couple of millimeters error when you're looking at the optic disc, so you really want to hold that hand really still, and then you're going to gently just fan up and down, left and right, to make sure you've got the midline lined up beautifully with the optic disc at the back. 
Okay, so let's assume that we've managed to do that, and we've lined up the probe, and we've found the disc. What does a retinal detachment look like on ultrasound? The retina is a really thick, bright flap when it detaches from the posterior part of the eye. The key here is that it always detaches from the disc. So what you're looking for is a relatively thick, white flap that's based on the optic disc. It can be in different sizes, and it will tend to flop around with the eye as the patient moves their eye from left to right but it is always attached to the optic disc where the nerve attaches at the back of the eye. Now, a vitreous detachment is a less urgent process, so how will that look different on ultrasound? Yeah, so a vitreous detachment is usually a much finer film. It's almost like a web or a piece of plastic wrap that's just floating there in the back of the retina, just in front of the posterior sclera. And if you ask the patient to look left and right, it sort of flops around with the movement of the eye. But importantly, it's different to the retinal detachment in that it's not fixed to the optic disc, so it just sort of floats in front of the optic disc, if that makes sense. I would also suggest at this point that people go and look online at some of the videos because this might sound complicated, but it's actually sort of exquisitely simple when you see these images. And um, the key difference there between the vitreous and the retina with the retinal detachment being sort of linked and fixed at the optic disc. So that's really going to help ground you in terms of interpreting what you're seeing. Now, vitreous detachment is actually very common after the age of 50, especially in diabetics, but it can, of course, precede a serious retinal detachment. So can you actually have both? Yeah, absolutely. When you scan eyeballs a lot, you'll notice that you'll see a lot of these vitreous detachments in people that don't actually have any eye problems as such. And if you look at the optic disc in both planes, you may see the vitreous detachment, but you really don't want to miss that small early retinal detachment. So you really want to find that optic disc and scan across and make sure you're not seeing that small, thick, white flap that's starting to lift away from the optic disc, because that's one you want to catch early. So those patients can have life-saving laser surgery if you get in there quickly and fix their eye. So posterior vitreous detachment is actually a really common problem. It's almost a normal finding in a lot of these older folks, and they don't need to be reviewed urgently unless you find that little retinal tear that's just starting. Those are the ones you want to catch early. Okay, those are great pearls to remember. Now, what about a vitreal hemorrhage? I assume that you can also pick these up on ultrasound? Indeed. Vitreal hemorrhage has a very distinctive appearance, and we describe it as what we call the socks in the washing machine. So, Vanessa, I want you to imagine that you're looking at the front-loading washing machine in the laundry room, and as your patient's moving their eye from side to side, you can see these sort of socks flopping around in the washing machine as it turns left and right, back and forth. Does that sort of make sense? That totally makes sense. I think it's a great description. And it would also explain where all my one-sided socks are because I have a house full of unpaired socks. I know that vitreal hemorrhage happens in a lot of different eye diseases and can be associated with trauma, diabetic retinopathy, and macular degeneration. So can ultrasound help work this part out too? Sorry, Vanessa, I'm afraid that this is just where we get back to being good old-fashioned primary care doctors. So ultrasound can definitely tell us that there's blood in the vitreous, but you need to go back to being a a good doctor and a GP to work out why it's there. And so you have to take the history, do your exam, and then think about the patient's risk factors. And ultimately, a lot of these vitreous hemorrhages, it's all just about managing their underlying disease and getting them seen by the eye docs when they can. But that's what we do as family doctors. We know our patients, we know what they're up against. And now I can't wait for my next patient with floaters because I'm definitely going to give this a go. It sounds so much easier than trying to pry open their eye and look in with a fundoscope. Thanks, Casey. Running Injuries with Chris Drum. 
So Heidi, how do you go about encouraging patients to exercise? You know, I'd say, Chris, that my approach varies depending on the patient. How about you? What do you usually tell your patients? Well, really, any exercise they're willing to do. But patients often have excuses. So I usually go, hey, get out for a run. Consider the couch to 5K. I mean, jogging, it's quick. It gets a heart racing quickly. You don't need that much time to do it. But you know what? They sure do get injuries. Not as many injuries as those CrossFitters, but still a lot. So today, we're going to review some of the common running injuries. I like that. Chris, good idea. There was a greater than 25% injury rate for casual runners in a year, and over 50% for those crazy enough to run marathons. And you know what? That's the reason I gave up running. I used to do a lot of running, but it, <laughs> I just got injured too often. Sure, Jan. So, the first danger of running. Patellofemoral pain syndrome. Patellofemoral pain syndrome, also called runner's knee. Some of the clinical signs, pain behind the patella, often after changes in the frequency and intensity of physical training, and pain is worse with activities that stress the patellofemoral joint. This pain is often worse when people are descending stairs or running, obviously. Patients will have pain with squatting, kneeling, and often really nonspecific knee pain. And an effusion or a history of trauma makes this diagnosis much less likely. There are some very particular physical exam signs that I want us to review. Oh, good, because uh, these things kind of hinge on the physical exam. Oh, yes. No pun intended with the hinge. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pun. Well, the first is the theater sign. This is pain in the front of the knee after standing up when one has been sitting for an extended period. Number two is what they call the circle sign. And this is just when patients are asked to localize the pain that many patients just put their hands and kind of circle it around a patella. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen that one before, absolutely. So those are the classic signs, but what about what we'd see on physical exam? Yeah, so the patellar grind, or what they call the patellar glide, is when you displace the patella inferiorly into the trochlear groove. Then the patient contracts the quads while the examiner provides mild resistance. And this test is positive if it causes pain. Also, patients will have anterior knee pain with squatting. They also can be found to have the J sign, and this is a lateral deviation of the patella. Also on exam, we're going to do good old-fashioned palpation. This doesn't usually have point-specific tenderness, but patients will often point to the area around the patella and above that area. Patellar compression pain is almost always checked, but this has quite poor sensitivity. And swelling of the knee is not common, and it should make us think of a different diagnosis. Now, what about imaging? Does it play a role for patellofemoral syndrome at all? Well, I like this one because usually it's a clinical diagnosis. There are thoughts to consider getting x-rays in those over 50 years of age to assess for osteoarthritis. But I'll tell you, I'm less likely to think this is likely the diagnosis in patients as they get older. Okay. Now, what about treatment? Stop running. No, I'm (laughs) just kidding. But relative rest, you want to do daily exercise. And the goal is to correct the tracking of the patella. And often we need to strengthen the quadriceps. We can use NSAIDs. Bracing or taping are often done. But there isn't great evidence in trials showing that patellar taping causes much benefit. And surgery is rarely, rarely needed. Heidi, tell us about another danger of running. Who, other than being struck by oncoming vehicles, I'm going to have to go with a patellar tendinopathy. Patellar tendinopathy. This one, Chris, is actually the most common knee injury. It's not patellofemoral pain syndrome, it's patellar tendinopathy. 
And this is that classic pain in the front of the knee, so patellar pain. And it's also known as jumper's knee. So this pain comes with running and jumping. And we're going to see more so inferior patellar pain with this one. Tell me, what are these patients examined like? Well, the most common finding on exam is pain over the patellar tendon. This diagnosis is pretty straightforward because, you know, they're sore when you touch their tendon. There's also this thing called the single leg decline squat that you can do. And for this, you get your patient to keep their trunk upright and attempt to squat to 90 degrees, which I am actually doing right now. And you'll hear my voice start to go down. Podcasting and exercising at the same time. I love it. It's, it's a new world out there. Then for diagnosis, Chris, usually it's made clinically. But if you have to, you can move along to an ultrasound and an MRI if there's any doubt or if it's refractory to treatment. And what do we do for these patients? Do we tell them just to stop running? Uh, no. No, we don't. But their running distances and time may need to be reduced, which might not make runners happy. You can use ice and that exercise reduction as the first-line therapy. And, of course, our good friend physical therapy here. And physical therapy might recommend exercises, the decline knee bends, like very similar to the diagnostic test I just described, although this may initially be painful for the patient. And last but not least, there's always surgery. Of course, we don't do this right out of the gate. And this is probably for like those competitive higher level runners and for those who fail conservative treatment. There are more, more dangers of running coming. The knee is not the only area that is going to hurt if you run too much. Oh man, or even if you haven't run in a while and start running, then everything hurts. But I think you're probably talking about the lower half of the lower extremity. So I'm thinking of shin splints. That's the one thing that comes to mind. Oh, but for fancy people like us, physicians call shin splints medial tibial stress syndrome. Oh dear. Shin splints. Well, this is an overuse, repetitive stress injury of the shins, and the pathology is likely due to periostitis of the tibia due to tibial strain while under a load. And this is a really common injury. The classic presentation of this is pain over the medial to distal tibia. And often the pain is worse after a certain level of exertion, and over time the pain may come even at rest. I've definitely had runners tell me that exactly two miles in their shin starts to hurt. Or 20 minutes in, I start to get pain in this area. And this isn't just for runners. Also can be found in football players, basketball players, dancers, soccer players. The physical findings for this are pretty straightforward. Palpation over the medial ridge of the tibia, mostly distal and middle regions, and mild swelling can be seen as well. The diagnosis for this one, like the other injuries we've talked about so far, is really pretty straightforward. You've basically got it on your history and physical, and you generally do not need to do any imaging. But x-rays may be used if you want to rule out other things, although they really can be negative in the first few weeks of symptoms. We used to use bone scans for years, but now MRI has really become the most common modality to evaluate if we need to use imaging. And as far as treatment is concerned, Chris, this actually is one where we need to tell people to stop running. And they need some rest and they need some ice, but... Runners hate this, so for some of our patients, we can instead encourage them to decrease their total running distance by 50% initially to see if that helps with the pain. And of course, as our physical therapist friends tell us, don't forget stretching. So calf stretching and eccentric calf exercises. And don't forget, uh, you need that rest and that stretching. And if it worsens or gets more severe, then we move on to the next danger of running. You think shin splints are bad. Wait until you see what's next if you don't treat these. 
Stress fractures. Yeah, we can actually fracture from this dangerous thing called running. Tibia is the most common site of stress fractures in runners. And 24% of overall stress fractures are tibial. Runners that average more than 25 miles per week are at a higher risk, and women are also at a higher risk as well. The two most common tests done that do not have great data but are often done are the positive hop test and the tuning fork test. Is that where you strike your tuning fork and put it on the tibia and... It hurts where it's fractured? Oh, yes. Ah! Mm, just a tad bit sharp. Ah! Perfect. Often patients have pain at rest and difficulty walking if they have a stress fracture. And this often is confirmed on an MRI or bone scan, with MRI now being more commonly used. And this can take 4 to 12 weeks to heal. Which is a long time, a long time. And the bad news is, is that the tibia is not the only place you can get a stress fracture. You can also see it in the femur and the pelvis, but also in the foot, in the tarsal, navicular, and metatarsal bones. The next injury takes us back to Greek mythology. Oh! It's time to talk about Achilles, the son of the mortal Peleus, the greatest warrior in the Trojan War. Ah, Achilles, yes. I know that Greek mythology character, but I am far more familiar with Achilles tendinopathy. Achilles tendinopathy. Ugh. Achilles tendinopathy has pain behind her heel. It can be a sharp or a pulling or an aching pain. People sometimes will just describe as a mild ache two to six centimeters above the heel, and you'll get stiffness in the morning that improves with mild activity. And the cases I've seen, Chris, for exam, there's pain on palpation of that Achilles tendon. Like sometimes it's at the insertion, sometimes it's anywhere on the Achilles. And you can also see uh, some swelling there. And the diagnosis, like most of these, is clinical, but you can use ultrasound or MRI if you're worried about tears. If we're thinking of a tear, we want to actually make sure there's no rupture, and that's when we do that Thompson test. And we all know that well. It's where you squeeze the calf muscles while the patient is lying face down with the foot hanging unsupported. And if the tendon's ruptured, then there's no flexion of the muscle and the foot just keeps hanging there, sadly. To treat these, NSAIDs have showed really minimal improvement. Oftentimes, patients use orthotics if it's needed to correct malalignment. We do physical therapy for this as well, and eccentric musculotendinous training. The goal in some of the exercises is lowering the heel below the toes, usually while standing on a step, to try to stretch and strengthen that tendon. There is mixed and inconclusive data for shockwave therapy and some of the injections that are being done at times. Hamstring injuries. A lot of these injuries we have discussed so far happen from overuse. Our next injury can be from overuse, but also can happen acutely from running. Every time I play softball and start taking off to first base, I just hope that my hamstring will still hold up. Oh, I know what you're talking about here. There are some doozies of hamstring injuries that you can run into, especially with the stop-start motion that you get in a sport like softball. Yeah. These strains often happen immediately after taking off running. Pain happens right away, often in the proximal hamstrings. A sudden sharp pain in the back of your thigh. Often people pull up quickly or they do a little hop. When I'm watching sports, I can tell right away when somebody pulled a hammy. Tears are listed in severity from a grade one to three, with a grade three being a complete tear of the muscle. What are we looking for on patients who we suspect may have a hamstring injury? Well, on exam, we might actually see some bruising and some swelling. As far as imaging goes, 
you know, you can diagnose it clinically, but you should be doing an MRI if you're worried about severe tears and if you have a high-level athlete that you're um, caring for. And for treatment, it's, you know, rest, ice, compression, and physical therapy. Unless, of course, you've got an avulsion of the tibial tuberosity, because you can't actually see that, because those hamstrings are pretty darn strong muscles, and they can actually just tear that bone right off. It's, uh, it's pretty impressive. And for exercises for a hamstring tear, there's something called Nordic curls, which I would recommend watching a video on because uh, it kind of looks like a yoga move, but involves being in a kneeling position and bending your body forward while keeping your feet in the same position. And then you also want to do lunges. So help your patients re-familiarize themselves with that, and that will help with their hamstrings. IT band syndrome. The injuries keep coming. Next, we lead to IT band syndrome. The iliotibial tract is a thick band of fascia that runs on the lateral side of the thigh from the iliac crest and inserts on the knee. And it inserts on the lateral tibial plateau and one of my favorite tubercles, Gertie's tubercle. Oh gosh, like Gertie just sounds so sweet until you start doing too much running, then whew, it's the place where all hell starts to break loose. So the etiology of IT band syndrome is inflammation of the IT band bursa. There's this anterior-posterior friction of the IT band on the lateral femoral condyle during flexion and extension, and there's impingement of a fat layer near the IT band attachment. Heidi, tell me about the symptoms that people with IT band syndrome get. So these people, Chris, have a sharp pain at the outside of the knee, and the pain is usually along that lateral femoral epicondyle. And they get this pain when the knee is bent, specifically when it's bent to 30 degrees. I mean, you don't need to get your protractor out and measure the angle, but that's where they're going to feel most of the pain is around 30 degrees. And why 30 degrees? Well, the theory is that this is when the band is passing over the lateral femoral condyle. And they're going to have sharp pain in these areas right as the foot hits the ground or immediately after the foot comes off the ground. Can I do the exam for this? Because it's so easy. Yeah, sure. Tell me about the exam. Tenderness over your IT band, right? This one's pretty straightforward. So when people are having that lateral knee pain, make sure you're palpating the IT band. We often also do the Ober test. And this is where a patient lies on his or her side. And the painful leg is facing up. It is assessing for tightness of the IT band. You do flexion at the hip. You pull the leg back. And then you slowly lower the affected leg to the table. And a positive test is when the affected leg does not go down and touch the table due to tightness and pain. For treatment, cross-training is really important here because this IT band is really just irritable because it's been doing the same thing over and over and over again. So we need to encourage our patients to modify their activities. Physical therapy can help with the goal of strengthening the hip adductors. And one of the things that can do this is what we call hip hikes. And that's where you stand on the edge of a step and lower the hip and then bring it up to neutral. Fascinating here, Chris. We no longer recommend doing exercises to stretch the IT band. We don't recommend that anymore. But we do recommend surgery for those refractory resistant cases. So, Chris, a good take-home point here is that if our patients are getting these injuries, it's good to catch them in the early stages and encourage them to slow down to prevent the worsening of these injuries and, of course, the dreaded needing to stop running. Yeah, and so runners often, they're not going to stop. And so we need to stop telling patients to do nothing, but we need to come up with a rehabilitation plan. 
and we need to give them a plan as to what they can do to get back to running. And as Aerosmith said, Run away, run away from the pain, yeah, yeah. So on that happy, classic rock and roll note, it's time to summarize. What's the take home? Summary. First thing we need to realize is I'm a terrible singer. (laughs) But when patients come in with a running injury, we should get a good history. These are patients that we can evaluate and treat without sending them all to orthopedics. Then we need to come up with a plan. Make sure to do a thorough exam and then not only refer to physiotherapy or physical therapy, but start to discuss some of the exercises and some of the areas that need to be rested and what muscles specifically we need to strengthen. I think sometimes we go, oh, you have this, go to physical therapy. And I think at this point, we need to think a little bit more about these different injuries and specifically go through, these are some different things I want you to do at home, even before you get to physical therapy. And our knowledge of this is going to help them get out and running better. And you know what? Overall, don't run away from these complaints. Rural Medicine Talks. So it starts out with a 50-something-year-old female. She's coming into our RED. You know the voice. Adrian Salim, been on the show before. Rural Medicine Doc. She tells a triage nurse that she fell. That's basically all the history that, that we're getting. Doesn't really have any specific complaints. It's just, you know, she fell. So the triage nurse notes that she appears a bit confused, maybe a bit intoxicated, was what she said. And now the patient says she consumes alcohol regularly, but she hasn't drank since last night. Okay, so it sounds kind of like a Friday night in an emergency department. Sounds kind of innocuous so far. Obviously. Cardi B. Her oxygen saturation is 80%. Her heart rate's a bit faster on 105 or so. The rest of her vitals are okay. The triage nurse brings her back into a monitored bed. She puts some oxygen on her. Her sat is now 95% with two liters of oxygen. And she's looking pretty stable. So I go to see the patient. But the first thing that I notice is that her face is like really puffy, like really big and puffy. Okay, well, you mentioned that she'd had a fall. Did it look like she had some sort of facial trauma? Were there any bruising? No, so that was a weird thing. There was like no bruising, no signs of trauma. It was just really puffy and, and swollen. I had really no idea why. And she says she just fell last night and then noticed her face was swollen this morning and she figured she should come in and get it checked out. She says she has no past medical history aside from drinking alcohol pretty regularly. But she does admit that she hasn't seen a doctor in, in, in a while, several years. So I check in our EMR, and she's only had one prior ED visit. That was about five years ago. It was for some alcohol-related issue, and, and that's about it. That's really the only information I'm getting. Okay, so this isn't really giving you the answer to this question about why her head appears to be swollen. So at first, I'm like, you know, puzzled, like, why? I just can't figure it out. I do a head-to-toe exam. I'm really not finding much. But it was when I was doing the FAST exam that it sort of all clicked together. So I was doing the FAST exam, again, because there was some sort of trauma. I'm just making sure there's no free fluid in her belly. And I'm really not seeing anything, like nothing. Normally you can see, you know, even if it's a difficult exam, you can still see a little bit, but I was not seeing anything. And then it dawns on me that I'm not seeing anything. It's because she's got subcutaneous emphysema just everywhere. And that's why I couldn't do the FAST exam. And uh, as soon as I realize this, I can just feel the crepitations just all over. It's like you kind of needed to know it was there and you need to know what you're looking for to, to, to find it, you know? There's, that's why her face is also on because there's subcutaneous emphysema just tracking everywhere. It's tracking all the way up to her face, down into her abdomen. So I send her for a CT head and a CT C-spine since I have no idea what happened and she seems a little bit altered. 
Okay, this sounds very alarming. I've never seen sub-Q emphysema like to that extent. It certainly sounds scary. But you do have a CT scanner in this emergency department, right? Or in this hospital. You don't have to transfer her out of the hospital. Correct, yeah. So we can do CTs in the department. But this happened on a weekend. So all we can do after hours are non-contrast CTs. So basically, we're just able to get CT heads and CT C-spines is all we're, we're able to get. Okay, so what did you find on the scan? Scan comes back all normal, aside from a lot of subcutaneous emphysema. Her chest x-ray, which I sent her for as well, is uh, not surprisingly shows a big left-sided pneumothorax, shows some rib fractures. I counted three of them, but it's really hard to see just because there's so much subcutaneous emphysema. And then the other significant finding is that her hemoglobin is now 89. And when I look back on our system, it, five years ago, it was 130. For our American listeners, her hemoglobin is now 8.9 compared to 13 five years ago. Okay, so what's your plan at this point? Yeah, so I'm thinking she's got some sort of significant trauma that led to her having rib fractures and a large pneumothorax. Her hemoglobin is low, but I have no idea if this is like an acute or a chronic uh, issue. And I'm completely unable to see anything on the FAST exam. So I, I don't know if she's having any other injuries. Is there free fluid in her belly? I just, I really don't know. So I call over to the trauma center. It's about an hour away by ambulance. And I see if we could get her transferred over there for some more imaging and some management. And they say they're happy to accept her. They just request that I put in a chest tube in the ED and then send her on her way after that. And I say, that's no problem. I think that's totally reasonable. So this is a single coverage emergency department, right? Like a chest tube, uh, sure, it's obviously needed, but it can take some time and could certainly slow down the flow to a grind. So what was your plan here? That was exactly my thought. So at this point, I'm nearing the end of my shift. There are a ton of patients in the waiting room. And if I start doing the procedure, I'm going to be out of commission for a while. Now, if I have to do it, you know, if you have to do it, you have to do it. It's not a problem. People can wait. But this patient's pretty stable, and I feel like she can wait the hour or so until the next doctor starts. And then this way, I'll have another doctor around to keep seeing patients while I'm doing the procedure. And also, in case we need to give procedural sedation, there's another doctor around just in case I need some help as well. Okay, so the next doctor comes on shift, and you're ready to go. Yeah, so I talk it over with the patient, and uh, we decide that she will need some procedural sedation for the chest tube insertion. So we've got all the equipment ready. We've got her on oxygen. She's got a sat of 99%. We get her on entitled CO2. There's a nurse dedicated to administering the medications, watching the monitor, watching the patient. The next doctor starts and she asks me if she wants to help with the sedation. And I say, look, it's really busy. Why don't you go see patients? Um, there's a ton in the waiting room. So just keep flow going. It's a small department. So I say, look, if I need you, you know, we'll come get you. You'll be two seconds away, you know? So everyone's good. We get started. We start with ketamine. It's going great. I'm dissecting down to the, towards the pleura. The patient's doing fine. So then I get to her pleura, and I haven't kind of punctured her pleura just yet, but she starts moving around, getting pretty agitated. So we give her a little bit more ketamine, but she's getting more agitated, and she's really starting to move around. So at this point, we give her a little bit of propofol. And then what happens next, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how this goes down. I've, I've gone through this in my head like a thousand times, and I'm still not certain exactly the sequence of events from here. But basically, from what I remember, the nurse calls out to me and she says her sat's 85%. So she goes around to start jaw thrust, and then she starts bagging. But then two seconds later, sat's you know 75%. So at this point, I call out to the other doctor. I say, can you come help us? So she comes right away. She starts bagging, but sat's now you know 60%. So I've stopped dissecting, my finger's still there, but I've stopped dissecting, and it's still right up against her pleura. And I think it was at this point, I noticed that there's no more pleth on the O2 sat monitor. So, you know, I asked for a pulse check, and they check, and there's, there's no pulse. 
Oh, God, how awful. That must have been so scary for you sitting there with your finger like up against her pleura trying to lead this, having your colleagues help with the airway. So I'm assuming you start CPR? Yeah, so we start CPR. I get my finger into her chest. She gets intubated. We already had blood cross-matched, so we give her two units right away. We do the usual CPR stuff. I think she got a dose of epi. We do about two cycles of CPR. I think it was probably about five minutes or so, and then we get ROSC. And what was she like post-ROSC? She was good. She was solid. She didn't need any pressors. Vitals were rock-solid after. But she wasn't really fighting the tube, and she really wasn't waking up. So I call back the trauma team, I update them, and then she heads over there uh, by ambulance. And so what happened when she got to the trauma center? Yeah, not a whole lot. They did, you know, they scanned her from head to toe. Everything came back negative. There was no other significant injury aside from the pneumothorax and the rib fractures. She's in the ICU there. She's stable, but she's not waking up. So I call over every day for, you know, a few days, but there's really no change in her status. A little while later, I check her imaging. Our, our hospitals are on the same kind of imaging network, so I check to see what kind of imaging she's had done recently. And this was about, I don't know, a week or two later, and she's got a trach and a feeding tube at this point. So that's when I kind of just lost hope, and I felt like there was really no chance that she's going to recover with any sort of good neurological outcome, and I, I basically just stopped calling and I stopped looking her up. Well, that's so rough. I've been there. I've done that myself when you kind of try and try to get news, and then you get a sense of which way it's going. And then you kind of cut yourself off. So what sort of things were going through your mind after all of this happened? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that was going through my mind, you know, reflecting back on this now. So this happened around the time that I started doing full-time emergency medicine. Up until this point, I was doing a little bit of emergency medicine and family medicine. And about five months before this happened, I kind of just started doing solely emergency medicine. And I remember thinking like, you know, maybe this wasn't for me. Like I, I should just quit, maybe just go focus solely on family medicine. And I also remember feeling worried about how I'd be perceived by my peers, you know, and then I remember feeling guilty about feeling that way. Like I'm not the one who ended up arresting and having a, you know, potentially hypoxic brain injury. So I should, shouldn't be making this all about me. But then I think the hardest thing for me was that night, you know, I still have a family and I went home and had to put the kids to bed. And, um, you know, I had to bring them to school the next morning, you know, life goes on and I'm trying really hard to not let it affect me. But you know, it's it's not easy. So, yeah, I mean, I think that was the hardest part, just trying to live your life after that, you know, and be there for, for the family. Yeah, I think in a lot of people sort of say about emergency medicine, that, you know, oh, it's good because you can leave work at, you know, work because you're not following patients after and you're not, you know, necessarily developing these long-term relationships with some of your patients. But these events can really shatter us and um, we do bring it home. It can be really hard to sometimes press the reset button. So was there anything that helped you? I know you didn't give up doing emergency medicine, which we are all very grateful for. But what sort of things did help you get through this? I think the, the big one was just talking to my colleagues. And that night, I got a few text messages. One was from the other doctor who I was working with that day. Another one was from the nurse that was, that was uh, there during the resuscitation. And they knew that I was pretty beat up about it. And so they sent me some encouraging words that night. So that really helped. And then I had, I think I had like three days off after, you know, after this shift, which I think made things worse. I think it would have been better if I just went straight back into working. But the next day, the next shift that I had, I was talking with one of my colleagues. And I just, you know, before the shift started, I kind of went over it with her. So that was really helpful. She, you know, a lot of people that I spoke to gave me really good takeaways. And, and, and that really helped just, you know, getting it out there and talking with my colleagues. And what sort of lessons did you learn? 
So look, for those of us who work in rural or single coverage EDs, we do a lot of procedural sedations, you know, with a single doctor and a nurse. And that's just reality. We just don't have the luxury of always having two docs around at all times. And we just, we can't call our anesthesia colleagues. If, if we do have anesthesia, we can't call them for every single sedation that we're doing. And again, that's just the reality of a single coverage ED. And normally it works well. You know, we have a doctor doing the procedure and can manage the airway if we need to. We normally have, a, you know, a, a nurse or a few nurses helping out with the airway, watching the monitor, watching the, the patient, helping with the procedure. And most of the time, the procedures are things like fractures or, uh, you know, dislocation reductions or cardioversions. And these are procedures where we can easily stop the procedure. And then if we need to, we can come around and take over the airway, you know, uh, quickly if we need to. But this was not that case, right? The patient started out hypoxic. The procedure was longer than usual. And it, I wasn't able to just come around and take over the airway if I needed to. Now, there was another doctor close by, but they weren't right there. And I think those seconds really mattered when we needed it. And I think as rural providers, we can sometimes feel like, you know, oh, we've been doing this on our own for a long time. We're, you know, we're comfortable. We don't really need any help. We've got this. But sometimes we do need help, and there's definitely no shame in that. This is one of your worst nightmare cases, right? So you're minding your own business when all of a sudden you've got a patient that's alive and breathing for themselves, and you sedate them, and they stop breathing for themselves, and they have a cardiac arrest. Procedural sedation is terrifying. You should go into it with the idea that you're going to take away a lot of this person's ability to look after themselves. It should terrify you. Even when you've done thousands of them, and you've become very comfortable with the procedures, and the sedation, you should be afraid. Whenever possible, get help. A second set of hands, eyes is really helpful. In the elderly, in those with comorbidity, I suggest that you use as small a dose as possible to get this done. Use local, use blocks, do what you need to do to try and use as little sedation as possible. The elderly in particular, and also those with comorbidity, can go from completely fine to apneic really fast. And the other thing I would suggest that, when possible, don't mix agents. A bit of ketamine and a bit of propofol here would have been the problem. So whenever possible, stick with one agent. So go low, get help, try not to mix agents, use a lot of local and other stuff as well. Despite that, you can do all of that and the person can still arrest. Be ready for that. Have the stuff ready for that. You know, this case was a number of years ago, and so knowing exactly what the doses and stuff were is really not the teaching point here. The real teaching point is be afraid, be very afraid, get some help, particularly in the high-risk patients, but in everybody. Yeah, 100%. And since this case, I've been way more likely to use hematoma blocks or nerve blocks, especially, you know, for those elderly patients coming with a coles fracture, and I just really don't want to have to sedate them. I've been doing nerve blocks, hematoma, and they work great most of the time, you know? So I've been much more likely to use that as opposed to sedation. Please do not hear us saying, Sedation is potentially dangerous, therefore never do it. No, no. Sedation is potentially dangerous and treat it that way. It's also uh, bad to not sedate people who need it. So do not take that message away. This is just a really good learning case. Just remember what you're doing here. You're taking an awake person who's looking after themselves and you're going to make them not so good. Be careful. So now do you want the good bit? You've all been stressed out about this. You've all been in that circumstance. We have all sedated patients and it's gone badly. And if you, that hasn't happened to you yet, it will. But here's the good part. Ever hear what happened to her? Did she make any sort of recovery? Yeah, and in, in fact, she did actually make a full recovery, but I only learned about that a few years later. It was actually just a few months ago that I learned that. It was just a coincidence. There was a, a newer ED nurse in the department, and I was telling her the story. And then the nurse, she had just come from working on the medical floor. She said, oh, I, you know, I know that patient. She was just admitted. And it turns out that after this patient left the ICU, 
She was there for about a month or so, then she was transferred back to our hospital for rehab. During that hospitalization, they discovered a few undiagnosed chronic medical issues, and she's been admitted to the hospital several times because of those. But she is talking and walking, and she basically made a full neurological recovery. That's amazing. That is so good to hear. And what was it like finding that news out? Like, how did it feel? I was just like, it was just such a huge relief. I remember driving home that night, and it was like a huge like weight had been lifted off me. And I'd been dealing with this for about, you know, five years, just kind of weighing on me. And it didn't change what happened, you know, but it was just uh, just a huge relief knowing that, that she actually made a full recovery. So to me, the other big teaching point here is forgive yourself. If you are a clinician, you're going to have some bad outcomes. And you do this long enough, you're going to have a lot of them. You have to learn to forgive yourself. You have to understand that you're all human and that sometimes things will go wrong because of you. And a lot of the time things will go wrong because they're just going to go wrong and you are the poor unlucky sod that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But you've got to learn to forgive yourself or you're going to carry a lot of PTSD and not be able to do the job. It's a hard job. It's terrifying a lot of the times. And like I say, sometimes you didn't even do anything wrong and bad things happen. Forgive yourself. Well, I really appreciate you sharing this story that I you know, know has been a challenge for you to sort of work through in your mind. And I appreciate you being so honest with us and also with these great teaching points that come out of it. So I'm very glad that you stayed in emergency medicine, as are all of your colleagues and your patients. And keep doing what you do, because what you do, Adrian, matters. Oh, thanks, Vanessa. Primary care medical abstracts with Ken and Steve. Welcome to the April 2022 episode of Primary Care Medical Abstracts. That's PCMA. I'm Ken Milne, and joining me, as always, fellow nerd Steve Brown. That's the best introduction I've ever had, fellow nerd. Thank you, Ken. But I understand we have another title or name that represents PCMA. Yeah, so Cardi and Heidi have been calling us Steve and Ken and the Ten. So yes, (laughs) once again, we have ten abstracts for you this month. Well, we're not going to banter around. We're not going to talk about the weather. We're just going to jump right in and start talking about these ten abstracts. So let's get started. And the first one is... Paper one. And I'm shaking things up a little bit. Probably a little early for that dad joke, but (laughs) salt is one of the most important molecules needed for life. And this will be a nerd alert. First episode of Star Trek, the original series, was called The Man Trap. Now, I'm not talking about the pilot episodes. The very first broadcast regular season one episode, The Man Trap. And in it, it was a monster who sucked the salt out of its victims. You know, a salt vampire, if you will. Ah, okay. So, okay, I'll get back to the actual abstract. (laughs) This trial was designed to quantify the potential benefits and potential harms of a salt substitute compared to regular salt on stroke, cardiovascular events, death, and clinical hyperkalemia. 
So this was called the SSASS, the Salt Substitute and Stroke Study. And it was an open-label, cluster, randomized trial that was conducted in 600 villages in rural areas of five provinces in China. They tried to recruit 35 people from each village and follow them for five years. It included adults 60 years of age and older who had a history of stroke and had poorly controlled high blood pressure. Now, they define that as a systolic blood pressure of greater than 140 if you're already receiving blood pressure-lowering medications, or greater than 160 if not. The intervention was a salt substitute containing 75% sodium chloride and 25% potassium chloride. And the primary outcome was stroke. The safety outcome was clinical hyperkalemia. They recruited close to 21,000 patients with a mean age of 65 years. And it was fairly evenly split between men and women. 73%, so almost three quarters, had the history of stroke and almost 90% had a history of hypertension. The result was stroke was statistically lower in the salt substitute than with the regular salt. Secondary outcomes also favored salt substitutes, and there was no observed increase in adverse events related to hyperkalemia. So Steve, we're often talking about underpowered studies, but we don't often talk about overpowered studies. So this had 21,000 patients. And of course, if you have a big enough cohort, you can find these tiny, small statistical differences. And they found this tiny, small statistical difference. It was 0.0046 per year, or a number needed to treat of 217. Now, the biggest issue, though, of course, is external validity. This trial was done in rural China, where most of their salt is exogenous. And what I mean by that is it's the salt shaker. They're putting the salt on their meals. Not like you and I here in North America, where it's mostly, I'm going to call it endogenous <laughs> processed food. Um, more than 50% of the participants were current or former smokers. Almost three quarters had a previous stroke. So my question is, is this the same population that we would see in our practice? Yeah, it's certainly not. We don't know how this applies to a Western diet, like you say. Still, though, it's it seems like a pretty, I mean, it's a very interesting sort of prospect. I think it's very, it's hypothesis generating, I think. But also, not only was there a decrease in stroke, there was a decrease in death from any cause. Number needed to treat 200. So the <laughs> you didn't mention that this is actually SAS, right? S-S-A-S-S, Salt Substitute and Stroke Study. I think it's intriguing, but I agree we don't really know how it applies to Western diets and Western populations. Listen, this is abstract number one, Steve. It's a little too early to get sassy <laughs> on me. So I couldn't find this commercially available on Amazon. There are salt substitutes that are just the potassium chloride. Have you tried that before? I have not. Apparently it's awful. Like it gets really low star ratings on Amazon. They don't have the 75-25 mix. They do have just pure potassium chloride. And I think people don't use it because it just tastes so bad. So I'm wondering if maybe these people in these villages just used a lot less because the substitute tasted so bad. And I don't know how bad it tastes if it's like 75-25. They mentioned where they got it. They, quote, purchased it from local manufacturers. 
So I don't know if that's like a compounding salt pharmacy equivalent. And I guess two of the five years it was donated. But again, I think this is another reason why this is maybe not externally valid, but I think interesting and sort of hypothesis generating. Yeah, for me, it was a chance to bring up this whole idea of how much salt we consume and leads to my bottom line. And that is bottom line, encourage patients to eat less processed food and don't use the salt shaker or the substitute salt shaker. Paper two. Abstract number two is effective metformin and lifestyle interventions on mortality in the Diabetes Prevention Program and Diabetes Prevention Program Outcomes Study. This is a very long-term study, and this is a follow-up. And so the question here is, does use of metformin for patients at risk of diabetes improve patient-oriented outcomes? And Ken, they waited until the third word of the introduction to use the term pre-diabetes. Trigger. Exactly. This is a long-term follow-up to the Diabetes Prevention Program and Diabetes Prevention Program Outcome Study to determine whether metformin or lifestyle modifications can lower rates of mortality. They enrolled patients from 1996 to 1999, more than 3,000 adults at risk for type 2 diabetes, randomized to intensive lifestyle intervention, masked metformin, or placebo. And when you look at high risk of developing diabetes, basically these were people who were like on the cusp of diabetes as defined by glucose. So high risk of developing diabetes, BMI over 24 kilograms per meter squared, elevated fasting glucose and elevated two hour glucose tolerance test. So sometimes people can have one or the other. In this case, they had both. So they stopped the placebo and the lifestyle interventions in 2001, so they'd been on for you know something like five years, a modified lifestyle program was offered to everyone, and then they unmasked the people that were on metformin and told them to continue it if they were originally randomized to metformin. And then they followed these patients now for a median of 21 years. What are the results? Well, first, if the patient reached 140 milligrams per deciliter glucose fasting, or an A1C of seven, they were removed from the study, stopped, and they transferred care to their own physician. So those are people who meet the number for what we call diabetes. Compared with placebo, metformin, or lifestyle modification, no influence on mortality from all causes, cancer, or cardiovascular disease. So no difference. And between 50 and 60% of the patients in all groups transitioned to a diagnosis of diabetes and cancer is still the leading cause of mortality over time in these patients. And, you know, despite our best efforts, Ken, the term pre-diabetes seems here to stay. Even the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uses it. In, in 2021, they gave a recommendation to screen based on, quote, reducing the progression to type 2 diabetes and reducing other cardiovascular risk factors. So this cohort study does not seem to support, and actually neither does the USPSTF, the use of metformin in abnormal glucose not reaching definition of diabetes. Well, it is hard not to be nihilistic. But remember, these people did not have a disease. They were at increased risk of getting diabetes. They had pre-diabetes. And you know, I've said this before about pre-tachycardia. So I, I think they would have found similar results if you'd done the study 
with people like me and you who are pre-tachycardic and offered us lifestyle changes and maybe a low-dose beta blocker and see what the results would be. Uh, And what about the harms and adverse events? I mean, metformin's not a benign drug, right? And the difference between a drug and a poison is the dose (laughs) and the duration. And if there's no statistical benefit, then I would posit that even a low risk of harm would be unacceptable. Bottom line. For patients with abnormal glucose not meeting criteria for diabetes, metformin does not reduce mortality. Lifestyle changes should be prioritized. Paper three. Abstract number three. Does subclinical hypothyroidism add any symptoms? Evidence from the Danish population-based study published in the American Journal of Medicine 2021. And I think many of us may struggle with patients who have subclinical hypothyroidism. And the aim of this study was to characterize the clinical presentation of subclinical hypothyroidism from 13 previously identified symptoms found to be more frequent among patients with overt hypothyroidism at disease onset. So these researchers had already established that there are these 13 identified symptoms when people present with overt hypothyroidism and said, what what about the people with subclinical? So this data comes from the Danish investigation on iodine intake and thyroid disease study. It's a cross-sectional study done in the late 1990s to the early 2000s. They had about 9,000 people who had laboratory testing and then this extensive questionnaire. Subclinical hypothyroidism was identified in almost 400 people using a serum TSH level and no overt hypothyroidism. And then they compared it to over 7,500 euthyroid controls. The mean age was in the early 40s and no surprise, four out of the five patients were women. The data was probed with both uni and multivariant regression models, probing things to predict why some patients have more complaints than others. Subclinical hypothyroidism, those patients did not report, did not report higher hypothyroidism scores compared to the euthyroid controls. Interesting. Comorbidity had the highest impact on symptoms. So, tiredness and shortness of breath, things like wheezing. Another very interesting thing is the TSH level was not correlated with the symptom score. And you would think if there was a good relationship there, you know, the more off your TSH, the more off your symptom score should be. And they didn't find that correlation. Younger age was associated with higher mental burden and shortness of breath was associated with a higher body mass index. And so I think this study, Steve, is informative. It can guide our clinical conversations with patients. The focus should probably be more on comorbidities rather than lab results. And in younger women, you may want to focus addressing mental health concerns, but again, that's representing a population. And in older women, encouraging a lower BMI. But we'd probably be doing that anyways. It can also set expectations about response to therapy. Previous randomized control trials have demonstrated that giving thyroxin or thyroid supplementation has little impact 
in people diagnosed with subclinical hypothyroidism. Yeah, we talked about this in Right on Prime November 2019. It was the systematic review that then was turned into like a rapid guideline, 21 trials over 2,000 patients. When you randomize patients to thyroid treatment or no thyroid treatment who are subclinical hypothyroid, no difference for quality of life, thyroid-related symptoms, fatigue, cognitive function, mortality, or cardiovascular events. And so actually, Ken, this paper that you picked, this is my favorite one of the month because the conversation I often end up happening with patients or our residents is, well, she's subclinical hypothyroid, but she has XYZ symptom. So maybe it's worth just trying to see. And basically what this tells us is not only am I not going to improve those symptoms, but that actually her symptoms are not correlated with her thyroid disease. They're correlated with other things. So I think this is a great example of not kind of like sick labeling patients. Oh, it must be your thyroid. And now this patient is forever going to think there's something wrong with his or her thyroid. So more just, you know, let's, let's talk about how we can make you healthier and not focus so much on your thyroid. Wow. That's a great way to talk to residents and, of course, talking to patients about that. Bottom line. Subclinical hypothyroidism is like many other conditions in medicine. Treat the person, not the lab value. Paper four. Abstract number four, time to benefit of bisphosphonate therapy for prevention of fractures in women with osteoporosis. This is a meta-analysis, JAMA Internal Medicine, 2022, January. How do we balance the benefit of short-term safety and tolerability with bisphosphonate use with long-term benefit? And, and can I know that you have had patients that in the short term, they really have a hard time tolerating the oral bisphosphonates? Resendronate, alendronate causes GI irritation, esophageal ulcers. It can be difficult to take. We tell them, my patients sort of look at me like, what? When you have to sit upright on an empty stomach for 30 minutes. And then the other bisphosphonate is IV, which is zoledronic acid. And I did not know this from the introduction. 40% of the time on the first dose, patients get headaches, fevers, myalgias, and malaise. So we have to sort of balance those short-term tolerability issues with the long-term benefit. And so these authors wanted to look at the literature on bisphosphonate to determine what they call the time to benefit, TTB, which is, I thought, pretty clever to think of it in that way. So they, they reviewed randomized control trials from systematic reviews that were done by the USPSDF, the AHRQ, Cochrane Library, Endocrine Society, they focused on the three medicines that I mentioned, these three bisphosphonates, alendronate, resendronate, and zoledronic acid. Those are the guideline-recommended first-line agents. So almost always one of those three is going to be the first thing you recommend for your patients. They chose studies that were RCTs that were postmenopausal women, diagnosis of osteoporosis based on existing fractures, vertebral fractures, or bone mineral density T-scores of less than minus 2.5. Studies reviewed, they included women with a primary diagnosis of osteoporosis. They had to have a placebo arm, and they had to have data on time to fracture. And they used what our friend Mark A. Bell calls statistical jujitsu, fancy statistics, random effects while bull survival curves were fitted, and Markov chain Monte Carlo methods were used. The Monte Carlo part sounds kind of fun. I'm I'm happy to uh, you know talk about Markov chain Monte Carlos 
with you, but I think we would lose 100% of our audience. And the ones that we didn't lose would be asleep by the time we moved on, yes. <laughs> so what were the results? 10 randomized controlled trials, 23,000 postmenopausal women with osteoporosis were included. The studies ranged from around 1,000 to around 8,000 patients per study. The mean age ranged from 63 to 74, and they followed up the patients from 12 to 48 months. So 12.4 months to avoid one non-vertebral fracture per 100 postmenopausal women. 20 months to avoid one hip fracture per 200 postmenopausal women receiving bisphosphonate therapy. 12 months to avoid one clinical vertebral fracture per 200 postmenopausal women. They give this kind of cutoff number, but actually the curve is linear, and you start to see statistical significance around six months. The authors conclude that a patient would need to have a life expectancy of 12 months to benefit from treatment. Yeah, I like this study. And you mentioned that TTB, the time to benefit. I was thinking, of course, of TCB, taking care of business or taking care of patients, TCP, I guess it would be. But it reminded me of the great website, the NNT, the number needed to treat. And it's a great website. And I use this all the time in my clinical practice. I use it when I'm teaching with residents. I go to this website and they've got a post or a episode on the number needed to treat and the number needed to harm four bisphosphonates for the prevention of fractures in postmenopausal women with either prior fractures or at very, very low bone density. And it's interesting in that review, they had the number needed to treat was 100, just like they found in here for hip fracture preventions, non-vertebral. So you know, I thought that was uh, pretty good. So it's a great website. It's called thennt.com. Yeah, we know that bisphosphonates prevent fractures, including the very dreaded hip fracture. I'm always a little less excited about what they call the non-vertebral fractures, which throw in some that might be somewhat less clinically significant. So I think they should be recommended. It's a shared decision for women with osteoporosis or with a fragility fracture. And I thought that this was helpful because you can talk about the tolerability issues. Yeah. And the nice thing in the NNT website is they reduce it to a stoplight, you know, with a red, yellow, and green. And I know that loses the nuance and stuff like that, but sometimes I'm really busy clinically. <laughs> I just, can I just click and see, oh, okay, green light, go ahead, bisphosphonate, and then dive into the nuance later. So it does simplify it quite a bit, but that can be helpful. Yeah. And last year we had a listener write in and ask us about denosumab. And we talked about that in July, 2021, abstract six. Denosumab is also an option if the bisphosphonates are not a good fit for your patient. Bottom line. Bisphosphonates prevent fractures with benefit seen as early as 6 to 12 months. Paper 5. Abstract number 5. This is public preferences for delayed or immediate antibiotic prescriptions in UK primary care. A choice experiment published in PLOS 2021. There are a variety of strategies to decrease antibiotic prescriptions to address antibiotic stewardship. And the goal of this study was to determine if patients in the UK would prefer an immediate or a delayed. <laughs> Wait and see. See what I did there? That was very meta, wasn't it? Uh, antibiotic prescription. So this was an online study. 
with uh, 12 respiratory infection scenarios, cases that they put together, asking adults, hey, what would you prefer? And they got over 800 adults to answer this, and another 800 adults with at least one child less than 18 years of age, because they wanted to say, okay, ask about your own health, and what about if it was about your child and delaying the prescription? So I thought that was a good thing to tease out. Now, the completion rate, whoa, 75%. That set off a red flag for me. <laughs> These people in the UK are really responsive. And now it was those who clicked the actual link, but 75% completed it. Now, the biggest factor affecting prescription preference was duration of illness. So how long was I sick? And I, I see this all the time. Yeah, doc, um, I, I waited it out. And some people think a long time is, yeah, it's, it started two days ago. This is, and other people are two to three weeks. And then you're going, hey, what took you so long? So there's a real spectrum in there. But the biggest factor affecting prescription preference was how long the person had been ill. Now, the more minor the symptoms, the more likely they would say, yeah, no, it's just a nuisance. Um, you know, a, a delayed prescription is fine. It's not that bothersome. So the more minor, the more likely they were to prefer a delayed prescription. But this is the interesting observation, that the delayed prescribing did not have a high level of concern for parents. And that goes against my bias. I thought, oh, well, you know, it's me. I can suffer through it. It's no big deal. But if it's one of my children, oh, no, you know, uh, I'll just fill the script. Okay, I don't want to delay it. And yeah, they didn't find that. So interesting. Maybe child rearing in the UK is a little different than my child rearing. I don't know. The high completion rate of this online study, though, did set off a red flag. Now, they did incentivize people. They incentivized them by offering them one pound. <laughs> now, it wasn't one pound of silver or one pound of gold. It was one pound. And so, of course, I, you know, Googled this and that's a dollar thirty-six. I don't know. That suggests me these are unique individuals who do not represent the general population. The hypothetical nature of the study also makes me less certain about the results because, you know, if you're in that clinical scenario, your behavior may change than some kind of, well, if you had a runny nose and a sore throat or a cough for four days or six days or whatever, it's different when you're actually living the experience. And while there were a number of interesting subgroups, I'm not highlighting them because I think they should just be considered hypothesis generating. And of course, there is this issue of external validity outside the UK. I don't know if that stiff upper lip helps with that runny nose or something, but I don't know if it would apply to North America. Yeah, I thought this was fascinating. And, you know, obviously survey data is not as strong as a randomized controlled trial. And there is a 2017 Cochrane review that shows that, that antibiotic use, if you delay it, it decreases use of antibiotics with no worsening of outcomes. But what I thought was super fascinating about this is... When you talk about evidence-based medicine, evidence does not make decisions. So you can know the evidence, but then you have to tie that to patient preferences. And just like this study, there are other studies on, on patient preferences. And even people that come in thinking they want an antibiotic, if they have a good talk with the doctor, a good communication, they are satisfied. It doesn't matter as much what you end up writing for. Delayed antibiotic, no antibiotic, antibiotic. If you have a conversation with the patient about why. And I think this is really helpful for me to know that longer duration, 
and worse symptoms are the ones that maybe the patient will have a somewhat stronger preference. And so I'm going to give away the secret to this whole concept of antibiotic prescribing and how to lower it. You ready? Because this is in the bottom line. I'm ready. Okay, so everybody just lean in here. Bottom line. The best way to decrease unnecessary antibiotic prescribing for viral illnesses is to not write prescriptions for antibiotics for viral illnesses. <laughs> Paper six. Abstract number six is about fall prevention. It's a meta-analysis from the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, October 2021. Some people who listen regularly might be like, wait, Stephen Ken just talked about fall prevention. And that's true, but... Actually, so that was August 2020, and it was a non-systematic review in the New England Journal of Medicine. So a systematic review means you go through and you find all the papers and you're very uh, systematic and methodical about it. A non-systematic review is, I found a bunch of papers that I thought were cool and I wanted to write about them. So <laughs> I Googled Exactly. It. So we're going we're gonna to up the level of evidence for our official recommendations for fall prevention. The August 2020 abstract that we talked about recommended screening for falls in older community dwelling patients by asking about the number of falls in the last year and using the get up and go test, if you would like. And then management recommended in this non-systematic review were exercise, multifactorial assessment and management, and the risk factors to look at are a lot and, and very not always easy to measure, but balance, gait, strength, vision, orthostatic hypotension, medication, environment, cognition, and psychological health. So basically everything about an older patient is a risk factor for falls. So the authors of this systematic review sought to compare the effectiveness of single, multiple, and multifactorial interventions to prevent falls and fall-related fractures in community-dwelling older persons. They searched all the appropriate databases. They even included two large randomized controls trials published after their search concluded, and they performed a network meta-analysis. So the results, 192 studies, almost 100,000 patients. Exercise reduces falls with a relative risk of 0.79. Multifactorial interventions reduce falls with a risk ratio of 0.87. And the common components of these multifactorial interventions include exercise, assistive technology, environmental assessment and modifications, quality improvement strategies, and basic falls risk assessment, like medication review. Basic falls risk assessment and exercise both reduce fall-related fractures with a relative risk of 0.60 and 0.62. And so, you know, whenever you hear these relative numbers, you want to try to put them into absolute terms. And so if a patient has a 10% chance of falling or your patient population in a year, a 20% relative risk reduction would be a 0.8 relative risk. And that's a number needed to treat of 50. So you have to know how likely someone is to fall. The more likely, the more likely these interventions are going to be beneficial. They, vitamin D is not helpful. They reconfirmed that again. And there, some of the domains had major confirms for bias. So we talked about this last time that so-called multifactorial interventions are pretty hard to implement in practice. They need lots of, you know, sessions and education and other interventions, multidisciplinary team. 
But if you have a patient at a high risk of falls, there are definitely things you can do to help the patient, especially if you have a team that you can bring in to help the patient. Yeah, I'm glad you picked this paper. Falls are super important and they often show up in the emergency department. And you know that I, I also work in the emergency department. And there was a recent scoping review on prevention and risk stratification for geriatric falls presenting to the emergency department. So I wanted to give them a shout out. This is by Hamuda et al. And this was published in Academic Emergency Medicine. And this is part of their GEAR network. That's Geriatric Emergency Care Applied Research. And my good friend, Chris Carpenter, is part of that group. And so they did a systematic review looking at fall prevention for people who presented to the ED with a fall. And then they also did a systematic review looking at risk stratification and fall care plans in patients over 60 in the ED or pre-ED setting. And they identified my favorite number of research priorities. That's right, five. And so the first one was that EMS role in improving falls-related outcomes. Yes, absolutely, EMS can play a role in this. Identifying optimal ED fall assessment tools. If we don't have a good tool to assess, it's really hard to address the problem. And then this circles back to what you said on the previous abstract, clarifying patient priorities, right? Engage the patients. The literature informs our care, it guides our care, but it doesn't dictate our care. And we got to talk to our patients. And these are patients that are falling and we've got to engage with them and talk about what interventions would they find acceptable and what outcomes are they concerned about? And then use a standardized uniform falls assessment and measuring outcome. So not the assessment tool, but how are you going to assess the outcomes and standardize those? And then the fifth one was just exploring ideal intervention components. Yeah, that's great. It really is. Falls are really an area that affect all areas of medicine, inpatient, ED, and primary care. Yeah, I think this was my favorite abstract of yours. And again, because it gives a big shout out to how important exercise is for this. It's, it's so good for so many people, for so many reasons. And it's not just the physical, it's the mental, it's the socialization. I mean, you guys have HIPAA, we have something similar up here, so I can't talk about patients, but I can talk about my mom. And, you know, she is quite active. She's 81. She goes bowling. She goes golfing. She gets together and does physical exercise with a group of women that get together. And it really contributes to her both physical and mental well-being. That's great. Bottom line. Multifactorial interventions and exercise reduce falls in community-dwelling older adults. Paper seven. All right, here we go with abstract number seven. This one is called maintenance or discontinuation of antidepressants in primary care. This was in the New England Journal of Medicine 2021. This is a super common question. I'm sure you get this as well in your practice. You know, you have someone who's on an antidepressant and they're doing well and they're like, hey, can I take a holiday? Can I just stop this drug? So this study was asking whether patients should stop their antidepressant or continue their antidepressant. It was multi-center, randomized, double-blinded trial from 150 general practices across four sites in England. Now, recruitment was via a letter after they went click, 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 and searched their EMR to find these people. And they got almost 500 adults. And they defined that as 18 to 74 years of age. They had to have a minimum of two previous episodes of depression 
or been on one of four antidepressants. And that was citalopram, sertraline, fluoxetine, and mirtazapine for greater than two years. And these patients were considered well enough to discontinue the medication. So what they did was one group received their usual antidepressant. It just kept on going. And the other group, in a blinded fashion, tapered off to just a placebo over months. The primary outcome was the first relapse of depression within one year. The cohort consisted of a mean age in the mid-50s, three-quarters were female, and a half were on citalopram. So the result was relapse occurred quite frequently, you know, 39%. So more than a third of people who were still on active treatment would have another depressive episode within a year. I think that's an important number to remember. Now, that was in the maintenance group, though. More than half, so 56% in the group that tapered off and discontinued within one year. And so that gave you a hazard ratio of two, so double. There was no statistical difference in adverse events. So again, I think this is another good study that provides some good information when we're discussing with patients whether to discontinue an antidepressant. Now, there could be some participation bias that I know you like to point out. They did identify over 23,000 potential patients when they went click, 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 and searched their EHR. 1,500 of them were screened, 600 of them were eligible, and less than 500 enrolled. And this also brings up the idea of external validity as well, because This applies to the antidepressants that they looked at, and they looked at three SSRIs and mirtazapine. And so it may not apply to other antidepressants and also the external validity to other countries like the U.S. Now, one thing, though, that makes me have more confidence in these results is that this trial was not funded by industry. And so that gives me more confidence. Yeah, I agree with you. This is super helpful. And the numbers that you gave, roughly 40% and roughly 55% to recur, that's a number needed to harm of six to stop an antidepressant, which I think is a really helpful number. The most patients that could not be in the study were patients that were maybe not stable or not ready to try to stop the medicine. So I think these are, you have to really think about the patients that you are thinking like, wow, they might be okay. And the patient's like, I want to try to stop the medicine. And these are patients that have had official depressive episodes. So these are not patients with depressive symptoms. They've also been on the medicine for two years. So basically this doesn't apply to all your patients, but I think very useful to say many people will have a recurrence regardless of whether you continue the medicine or not. But a few more, number needed to harm of six, will have a recurrence if they stop the medicine. I thought this was a great study. I thought it was very practical. Those meds that you mentioned are the meds that we use most commonly in our practice. So I think it was super useful. Yeah, and it really helps frame that shared decision-making. And I find that these people want to have more agency, want to have autonomy, and are asking, can I stop this? Will I be able to do okay? What's the expectation? Will I have another depressive episode? they are really typically very engaged. And so I think this gives you some really good numbers to generally talk about this issue of, hey, should I stop or should I carry on? Ken, are you sponsored by shared decision-making? I think I am, big share. I'm a little worried that you have a conflict of interest that you have not disclosed. I I have shares in big share. (laughs) 
bottom line. It's reasonable to offer discontinuation in a shared decision-making fashion of certain antidepressants with well enough patients, cautioning them that there is a higher rate of relapse with stopping. That's a great study. That was super interesting. Paper eight. All right, abstract number eight is the benefits and risks of iron interventions in infants in rural Bangladesh. September 2021, New England Journal of Medicine. I did not realize that 40% of children under five worldwide are anemic, and very commonly in Africa and Southeast Asia. In the United States, the prevalence of anemia in children is only around 4%. So that sort of helps you figure out like how this might apply to your own practice. And This is one of the reasons why the United States Preventive Services Task Force gives an I rating, insufficient evidence, or I don't know, rating to screening for iron deficiency anemia in children ages 6 to 24 months. Although many of you practice in regions or counties or in school districts where programs recommend screening based on elevated risk factors in certain zip codes. And I also did not know that the World Health Organization recommends universal provision of iron supplements, like in drops or syrup, or multiple micronutrient powders to young children in low to middle income countries where anemia is prevalent. So these authors wanted to kind of study that and see if it would make a difference for the outcomes that are most important. So the authors conducted a three-group, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of iron syrup multiple micronutrient powder, and placebo in over 3,000 eight-month-old children in rural Bangladesh. And the outcome was the most important outcome. Cognitive development, they measured it with a scaled score. They had secondary outcomes of behavioral, language, and motor development, as well as growth, and then the disease-oriented outcome of hematologic markers. So they gave these kids this intervention for three months, and then they looked at them in three months, and then they looked at them in nine months. And the results were no impact on cognitive composite score observed with iron syrup or micronutrient powder as compared with placebo after three months, and no apparent effect on other developmental or growth outcomes immediately after completion or at nine months after completion. The rate of anemia did about half. It went from 50 to 25% in the intervention groups compared to placebo at three months. So this is a short-term study. The result is not generalizable to the United States. We don't know the impact of five years of supplementation, but even a small improvement in cognitive function would be clinically important. This evidence does not increase the likelihood that I'll screen my patients. I've always been kind of skeptical, even though in our practice, we tend to screen based on our local recommendations. I think some PCMA listeners might be going, Ken, Steve, why the heck did you pick this paper? Rural Bangladesh? I love that you picked this paper because it identifies some really important concepts. One, of course, is that we have gross inequities in the world between resource-rich and resource-poor countries, to have an order of magnitude difference, to have 40% of children suffering from anemia, that just bothers me. I'm sorry. It bothers me, okay? The other important concept is, I wish it was as simple as just adding some iron supplement to improve cognitive development. 
And this comes up with a lot of other things we do in medicine where we go, oh, this number is down. This vitamin level is down. If we just replace that, things will be good. And usually the body is much more complicated than that. This is low, supplement, problem solved. It's probably and most likely multifactorial. And in these children, housing, food security, education, good jobs. What I'm talking about here is the social determinants of health. And so how do I bring this Bangladesh study back to my practice? Yeah, it it lacks a whole bunch of external validity. But you know what? There are some rural areas in our countries and some urban neighborhoods that are resource poor. And we need and should do a better job. Bottom line. Three months of iron or micronutrient supplementation does not improve cognitive outcomes in eight months old in Bangladesh. Paper nine. Abstract number nine. Disparities in physician compensation by gender in Ontario, Canada, JAMA 2021. So this study is from Ontario, Canada. This is where I work. And they were looking at the pay gap based upon gender. They got almost all the physicians that work in our province, and that's close to over 31,000 physicians in a province of 13, 14 million people receiving healthcare from a single payer system. So this is a captured system. 60% of the physicians were male and with a mean time since graduation of 23 years. Oh, I'm above average. Okay. There were three main types of payment model in Ontario. We have fee-for-service, people understand that, a blended capitation model, and then these things called alternative payment plans. Now, the authors adjusted for practice characteristics. So are these physicians practicing in a hospital? Are they outpatient office? Are they in a mixed environment? Which regions did they come from? Are they rural, urban, semi-urban? And then what specialty? Were they a family medicine specialist or they looked at other specialties? Here are the results. The unadjusted gap was 33%. Less, by the way, for women, just clear. Annual gap was 23%. But, you know, uh, some women may not work as many days of the year and stuff like that, or maybe working part-time. So then they adjusted it for a daily gap. Just look at per day, and it was 13%. Now, the gap was less when controlling for certain specialties, so some specialties were better than others. It was worse in a fee-for-service environment, and it was better in rural areas, so that made me feel a bit of pride. After they controlled for all the measured factors, and they can't control for unmeasured factors, the overall daily pay gap based on gender was 14%. And, you know, it's hard to believe, and it happens. Some people still deny that there are gender inequities in medicine. Women are underrepresented in leadership positions, less likely to be given senior academic promotions. There are fewer women in editorial positions in medical journals, and they receive less grant funding. I have references for all of those statements. The gender pay gap has consistently been demonstrated across multiple countries. So it's not just Canada, but we've got data from the US, the UK, Australia. Now, this study is limited by the observational nature of the data. Confounding factors could contribute to some of the results. The database didn't have the granularity to say, okay, how many hours per day do you work? 
the net amount was not captured. They were looking at billings and income. They didn't look at the expenses. And so overhead costs were not considered. And it's not how much you make, Steve. It's how much you keep, right? And despite these other limitations, I have to tell you, the results fit with my own clinical experience in medicine for 30 years. Yeah, the it reminds me of the meme with Robin Williams in Jumanji where he's got all the like the beard and everything and it's like what year is it? What year is it? Like seriously, 2022 and we're still talking about a gender pay gap and yeah, I found some data just like you did Ken that there was a 2016 US medical school study that showed tens of thousands of dollars gap for women. There's a really great article in 2019 Harvard Business Review from Drs. Rothstein and Dudley, and it talked about three things that we should be doing. They didn't say this, but this is what we should probably do is just destroy the patriarchy. Give me a hell yeah. But that wasn't one of their solutions, but that is a solution. But anyway, the three solutions that they mentioned were to enhance the salary data. So this everyone should know what everyone's salaries are. And then we women can engage allies in coaching and sponsorship, even if it includes an external coach. And then finally, if you're in a position of leadership, facilitate equitable promotion. So there are some steps that we need to take. We're not there yet. But if you're a leader, step up. It's time. What year is it? It's 2022. Did you see my notes? Because you basically have my bottom line there. We don't share our notes. Just so... no. Listeners, we don't talk about the studies beforehand. We don't show each other our notes and our interpretations of the notes. But you and I, we've got some simpatico happening here. So bottom line, we need to shift our focus from measuring the gender inequity in medicine to implementing solutions to this serious problem. Paper 10. Abstract number 10. Ceruminolytics with or without manual extraction for impacted earwax, a meta-analysis. This is in clinical otolaryngology. And I know that all our listeners have been really hoping for a meta-analysis on earwax treatment. Letters. We get letters, we get emails, I get constantly. Texts. It's interesting because it's a it's it happens in, you know, every day in our office, there's earwax obstructing ear canals. And so we remove it in our office using syringes, suction, people use aspiration. Sometimes that's not adequate. And, you know, the medical assistant comes and is like, I couldn't get it out. So there are medications that you can use to soften earwax, which are called ceruminolytics. And in 2017, the... the, Why you look... Not to be confused with thrombolytics. Ceruminolytics. There's less controversy about ceruminolytics than there are about thrombolytics. In 2017, the ENT Society in the U.S., which makes really great guidelines, they made a fairly obvious guideline statement. Clinicians should treat or refer to a clinician who can treat the patient with cerumen impaction with appropriate intervention, which can include ceruminolytics, irrigation, or manual removal. So we don't know which ceruminolytics are the most effective. And actually, a 2018 Cochrane Review was inconclusive. So these authors performed a systematic review and network meta-analysis to determine which agent is most effective. And they searched multiple databases. The primary outcome was wax clearing with manual removal after using these medicines. And I, spoiler alert, Ken, I'll give you the data here, but I have no idea what to do with this information. 
the evidence is very low quality and most of the things they recommend are not available to me in the US. So we'll get to that in a second, but 26 studies over 3000 patients, low strength of evidence. The authors found that sodium bicarbonate and paradichlorobenzene are the most effective if you're going to do syringing. There were quite a few others that were better than saline placebo. And they did something called a rankogram, which is a great name for ranking things, a rankogram. It also found paradichlorobenzene to have the highest probability of being the best. There were several medicines that were effective in the treatment of impacted earwax when compared to using these manual techniques. So like I said, I have no idea what to do with this. I'm Googling the heck out of paradichlorobenzene. It's mothballs. <laughs> and then I, I found an article in a, an American Family Physician 2018, which I'll put the link in the show notes. And the only, there's only one preparation that contains that ingredient in a 2% amount, and it's not available in the U.S. I couldn't find commercially available sodium bicarb. Most of the preparations I could find are brand name Debrox carbamide peroxide. We've used colase in our office. This systematic review does not seem impressed with either Debrox or Colase. So I don't think this meta-analysis can change our practice. It's a good topic, but no help. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Colase because it didn't look like it got the shit out of your ears, and I don't think it helps much getting the shit out of your bowels. <laughs> but I did want to bring up some things that you shouldn't be doing. You know, I thought this was an opportunity. Now, I don't think they really touched on this, but I want to give my grandmother's advice. And that is, and since you are looking at me, nothing smaller than your elbow, people, goes in your ears. I do not work for big Q-tip. Q-tip's bad. Q-tip's bad. So this is our take home. We don't know what medicines work and don't use Q-tips. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Milne. <laughs> Bottom line. There is not enough evidence to help choose which ceruminolytic to use, especially considering the limited availability of some products in the U.S. So that wraps up the April 2022 edition of what is now being called the Stephen Ken 10. Yes, thank you, everybody. Have a great month. sum this all up. Summary. Now it's time for the summary. We're starting with primary care medical abstracts, and I'm up first with paper number one. PCMA, article one. Effect of salt substitution on cardiovascular events and death from the New England Journal of Medicine 2021. This study was done in rural China and took patients with a history of stroke or a blood pressure that wasn't well controlled and looked to see whether giving them a salt substitute would diminish their rate of future strokes. It was difficult to extrapolate the results to our population in North America, but their results did show that there were less strokes and less deaths among those using salt substitutes. Turns out the salt substitutes are perhaps hard to get and apparently taste dreadful, but the bottom line really is try to avoid adding salt to your food and definitely avoid the salt-laden processed foods. Paper 2, Effective Metformin and Lifestyle Interventions on Mortality in the Diabetes Prevention Program and Diabetes Prevention Program Outcome Studies in the journal Diabetes Care 2021. So the bottom line of this cohort study is that we don't need to worry about using metformin in prediabetes 
because compared with placebo, metformin did not influence mortality from all causes, from cancer or from cardiovascular disease. Carry on. Don't bother with the metformin. Paper 3. Does subclinical hypothyroidism add any symptoms? Evidence from a Danish population-based study from the American Journal of Medicine 2021. I was so excited about this because a lot of patients are asking me about subclinical hypothyroidism and whether they shouldn't just quote-unquote try a little bit of thyroid supplement to make them feel better. Turns out that giving such meds to patients with these classic symptoms doesn't affect how the patients are feeling. So treat the patient, not the lab values. Paper 4. Time to benefit of bisphosphonate therapy for the prevention of fractures among postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. A meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials in JAMA Internal Med in January of 2022. This paper looked at the question, how long do you need to take a bisphosphonate to realize the benefit? Well, it looks like statistical difference starts to show up around the six-month mark, but somewhere in between 12 and 20 months is actually when we start to see that people do not fracture. So, for example, at 12 months, that's when we avoided one non-vertebral fracture per 100 postmenopausal women, and at 20 months was when we avoided one hip fracture per 200 postmenopausal women. And an NNT of 100 to 200, that's higher than I expected, but it's still good to have some numbers to be able to quote for our patients. Paper number five, Public Preferences for Delayed or Immediate Antibiotic Prescriptions in UK Primary Care, a Choice Experiment from PLOS 2021. This online study of 800 adults alone and 800 adults with a child with hypothetical respiratory tract infections looked at whether patients preferred immediate versus delayed antibiotic prescriptions. It turns out that these UK adults were more than okay with the idea of delayed scripts. So perhaps take this information and use it to inform our discussions with patients about antibiotic stewardship. Paper 6, Interventions for Preventing Falls and Fall-Related Fractures in Community-Dwelling Older Adults, a Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis in the Journal of the American Medical Society in 2021. This systematic review found that multifactorial interventions with a multidisciplinary team helps reduce falls. It also found that vitamin D does not, and I, for one, is a community physician, and I'm kind of sad that it's not the other way around because vitamin D is a lot easier to access than multidisciplinary teams and their multifactorial interventions. Paper 7, Maintenance or Discontinuation of Antidepressants in Primary Care, the New England Journal of Medicine, 2021. I love the clinical question behind this study because this is another question that patients ask all the time. Doc, should I stop my antidepressants, and if I do, will I relapse? The study showed that there is a risk of relapse of depression in patients once they go off their meds. But with support and advice, stopping can certainly be a reasonable choice. Paper 8. Benefits and Risks of Iron Interventions in Infants in Rural Bangladesh in the New England Journal of Medicine, September 2021. Anemia in infants is common, particularly in some populations, and this includes rural Bangladesh. So what happens when anemia in this age group was treated? Well, three months of iron or micronutrient supplement did not improve cognitive, developmental, or growth outcomes in eight-month-olds in this group, but their anemia did improve. A longer-term study is definitely needed to see if any of these other outcomes were affected, and I agree with Stephen Ken, this is not changing my practice. Paper 9, Disparities in Physician Compensation by Gender in Ontario, Canada, JAMA 2021. This study provided further evidence that there is a significant difference in pay scales for physicians in Ontario, Canada, on the average order of 14%. Yes, 14% people. As Ken and Steve say, it's 2022. Time to fix this. 
Paper 10, Ceruminolytics with or without manual extraction for impacted earwax, a network meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials in clinical otolaryngology in May 2021. And I love earwax. Like, I think it's just fun because you just get to play with squirt guns. That's what I call our little syringes. It's just little squirt guns, and it's very enjoyable. But sometimes earwax is really stubborn and tricky to get out. So my practice with my regulars, my people who need their ears flushed quite often, is to get them to put some oil in their ears for a few days before syringing, which I guess would not be so much a ceruminolytic as a softener. And this meta-analysis shocked me when it said that sodium bicarbonate and paradichlorobenzene are the most effective to use with syringing. To which I say, mothballs? Really? Mothballs? I don't know where to find these. I can't imagine asking my patients to put them in their ears, so I'm not changing my practice. So that was PCMA, but what else did we cover this month? Well, let's see. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Hobie and you were chatting about a topic that all doctors love to gripe about, namely being on call. Of course, it comes with the territory, and we know that, and there's really almost no way around it, but you guys did a great job exploring the different impacts of call responsibilities. It was really interesting to think of it beyond just how it makes us grumpy. <laughs> the Generalist. Then on The Generalist, you were joined by our Aussie friend Casey Parker for another chat about POCUS techniques that you can use in the office. I mean, assuming you have a machine in the office and are already trained. This month, you talked about using ultrasound to diagnose common eye complaints. It's a really great tool to have to triage people with these concerns. Have a listen and check it out. Running Injuries with Chris Drum. Next up on our office medicine segments, you and Chris Drum chatted about running injuries. I really liked how you went through the common injuries experienced by regular runners, giving us tips and tricks for the physical exam and also straightforward approaches to treatment. It was a great piece and I encourage everyone to have a listen. Rural Medicine Talks. Rounding out the month was Rural Med, where you and Adrian chatted about a scary case he had where procedural sedation went somewhat awry. It's a good reminder that procedural sedation is not a benign intervention and a good reminder to also ask for help if it's available. And with that, I can't believe another month is behind us. Another month of medical education goodness done and dusted. It was great chatting with you as usual, Heidi, and I look forward to seeing you for the May 2022 edition of Right on Prime. Until then, stay safe and keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. Matters.